Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And this week we are doing part two of And Then There Were None. Last week we ranked it, we discussed it at great length, and this week... I am excited to say we will be having a conversation not only between ourselves, as we always do, but with a third person, and that would be Dr. Mark Aldridge, with whom we spoke about Murder on the Orient Express. He is back. He is our resident expert on all things film and TV related as far as Agatha Christie goes. So he is the perfect person with whom to have a conversation about the many adaptations of And Then There Were None. And I'd say let's just jump right in. So we're about to get all telephonic here. We all jumped on the phone and had a transatlantic call. So let's get started. Mark, we wanted to thank you for joining us again. We're happy that we didn't scare you off with our Murder on the Orient Express conversation. We've been looking forward to discussing, and then there were none with you, for quite some time. We always knew that we were going to have to do it because... This is, of course, another Christie crown jewel, I think arguably the crown jewel and one that has so many film and television adaptations. So thank you for joining us. No problem. It's great to be back. Lovely. So um, I just wanted to make a disclaimer both for you and anyone listening to this conversation before we start in earnest, which is when we talk about characters in this story, we're going to use their original names from the book, regardless of what they're called in any one adaptation. Otherwise, I think it would get way too confusing because Lord knows these characters got renamed a lot (laughs) in different adaptations. So even though we may technically be uh, inaccurately referring to certain characters by names that that they don't go by uh, in a certain movie, I think it'll just help the conversation flow a bit more nicely if we use the character names from the book. Yeah, and Um, Christy often didn't remember which name she changed anyway. (laughs) I noticed that. I mean, it's hard to keep track. And sometimes I think the name changes are so silly. I'm like, can't you just keep the names the same? Why are you making this more difficult than it has to be? There are so many adaptations. I think it might help frame the conversation if we do a quick rundown of the adaptations that exist, just like a little timeline, if you will. So we all know the book was published in 1939. And then the first feature film adaptation we have is just six years later in 1945. And that, of course, is the classic film directed by Renee Claire. Then we also have a 1949 BBC televised adaptation, which I don't believe we can watch. Is that correct, Mark? No, it, it was never recorded, so it's not going to pop up anytime soon, unfortunately. <laughs> Unless we can time travel back to 1949 and get in front of a TV <laughs> you never and watch. Know. Catherine and I will work I mean, on I that. think there, um, there, there, are, there are better uses for one's TARDIS, I think, so <laughs> no offense <laughs> to that adaptation. <laughs> That's not what you would choose to do if you could travel back in time at any point, Catherine, and go back to the 1949... <laughs> BBC televised adaptation of And Then There Are None? You know, it's on the list, but not high up there. I'm like, first I'll go to the Grassy Knoll in Dallas, Texas in 1963, and then I'll go to watch the TV in 1949. It's a classic dilemma. Do you go back in time and kill baby Hitler? Or do you go watch that BBC adaptation of And Then There Were None? Totally I'm not going to rule out the going back to watch TV, I have to say. (laughs) Mark, I I would not put that past you, actually. I really wouldn't. And the only thing I'm going to say about that adaptation is that this is the one where Agatha Christie herself actually did not watch it. And the reason we know that is that she wrote the following about it. Just as well, I didn't see 10 Little N-Words, she used the, it was the original title for that one, on the television. I hear General MacArthur, after being stabbed, got up and strolled away with his hands in his pockets, quite unaware that he was in view. I should have been livid. So um, I actually kind of wish that we had been able to uh, time travel and watch that, because that sounds really funny. But um, that is that adaptation. Then in 1959, we have an ITV... 90-minute televised adaptation, which also seems to be lost to the sands of time. Mm-hmm. And then we have a 50-minute 1959 adaptation done in the U.S., which we were able to watch. And that is a very efficiently told story, as you can imagine. Uh, eight deaths being shoehorned into 50 minutes. It's such a different sort of animal from the feature films that we're going to discuss that unless, Mark, you have 
more to say about that one. And you do did have a number of interesting things, I think, to say about it in your book. We're probably not going to discuss it much more, but for anyone who can manage to get yeah, their hands that's, on that's, it, that's it is, fair enough. it's an interesting exercise. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I think I say in the book, it feels like a serial killer movie because people just die really, really quickly and then you're left trying to work out who it is. So it's quite fun genre-wise, but not really as an adaptation. Right, right. It sort of becomes a different thing because of its time limitations, which is actually really interesting. As scholars of adaptation, I think we all appreciate what's going on there and find it interesting, but I don't know if if it makes sense to include in a discussion of these broader and more expansive feature films that that take their time. So then we get into the longer adaptations, which match up with that first René Clair film. The first of these was in 1965. This is the first of three films produced by Harry Allen Towers, and the setting is switched up to a snowbound mountainside retreat. And I think the best way to differentiate these Harry Allen Towers movies, none of which are all that good is by just noting who stars as Lombard. And in this one, it's Hugh O'Brien, a.k.a. Wyatt Earp. Then in 1974, so about 10 years later, we get the second of these three Harry Allen Towers films. The setting has been switched up to a hotel in the middle of the desert in Iran. And here we have Oliver Reed starring as Lombard. Very different, but also very macho masculine in his own very different way. And then in 1989, we have the third of those Harry Allen Towers films, Yet again, switching the setting to an African jungle, cut off from the outside world by an unpassable ravine. And that stars Frank Stallone, Sly's brother, as Lombard, a very 80s sort of masculine. Really, really uh, selling that one. (laughs) Look going on there. Yeah, that one, let's not pretend, that one is terrible. That is a terrible, terrible adaptation of, and then there were none. At least so say I. But then our final English language adaptation is the 2015 BBC televised adaptation which, as far as I understand, although I'll be asking you about this in a second, Mark, is the first time that the book, as opposed to the play, is really being adapted in the English language, meaning we get all ten deaths, as we do in the book. And that, of course, stars Aidan Turner and his tiny towel as Lombard. And then the only other feature that we're going to talk about is this 1987 Russian-language adaptation, and we don't normally talk about non-English-language adaptations, but this one is so beloved by so many Christie fans because it's an early adaptation also of the book and not the play, meaning we get 10 deaths here. I can't really speak to who is starring as anyone in this one since it's all Russian actors and I didn't know any of them, but we will discuss that one as well. So You just really that, not want to try the pronunciation? <laughs> I really don't. I really don't. We've all heard what happened when I try to speak even French. I can't even imagine what would happen if I tried Russian. So that's a broad overview of all of the adaptations we're going to discuss. I think I'd love to open up the conversation, Mark, by asking what exactly the, the licensing situation was when it came to this property, because it does seem as though there's a difference between adapting the play versus adapting the the book, and that for a really long time, it was strictly Christie's play that was being adapted and not the book. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's quite a lot of movement in the late 1930s in trying to get some adaptations of her novels onto screen via Hollywood rather than the sort of cheaper pictures that there had been prior to that point. They're mainly looking at Poirot at that point, and this is obviously just prior to and then there were none. They're trying to get things like the ABC murders to be made in Hollywood, but the whole thing about Poirot characterization made it a bit sort of tough because they couldn't agree on what Christie would allow them to do, you know, letting them fall in love and all this sort of stuff. But it meant that this was still bubbling in the background, the idea that they wanted to sell her properties to Hollywood. So, and then there were none when it became a play, was really quite an obvious choice uh, to try and sell to Hollywood. She was always much less worried about her plays being made into films, for whatever reason, I guess because it's, uh, she has a particular dramatic script that they can work from rather than them interpreting it from prose. So, yeah, so it's no great surprise that, that this ended up being an American film because they've been pushing for it for a while, uh, largely because made a lot of money from it, which, which actually, if you sell books, even at Agatha Christie level, it takes a long time for that money to come back to you, especially via American tax. And uh, also, uh, it, it's a way to quickly get that money uh, in terms of your turnover. So, yeah, she was quite keen at this point to sell her licenses to Hollywood. So that's interesting. So unlike a lot of the other books that didn't have 
a dramatic adaptation. And in some ways, I think this was the book, too, that when she adapted it as a play, she then sort of got a taste of both enjoying that adaptation process and I suppose realizing that she didn't mind the plays being transformed into films as much so that this became this sort of avenue for revenue that didn't bother her as fundamentally as it seems adapting her novel seems to bother her sometimes. But I guess I have an additional question that's related to that, which is the fact that it is definitively a one-off and given the character deaths, you can't exactly have a spin-off of them. So you don't have to worry about the continuity of portrayal yeah. of Poirot or Marple or whomever else. Yeah, I think that's one of the really important points for her. Because you see about stuff that often got sold, uh, you know, Witness for the Prosecution later, Spider's Web, uh, Love from a Stranger. They, they're not Poirot in the Marple book. She was quite rightly and understandably protective over them. So yeah, it is much easier. To tell that. And I do think, and then there were none, just naturally lends itself to the stage, and she loved writing plays. So I don't think it's any great surprise that she saw it as a good candidate to put on stage, and then eventually, you know, working its way on screen. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good point, Catherine. I never thought about it that way because, you know, we see all of those late 70s, early 80s adaptations of non Poirot, Marble stories being made because. That's almost the way that she was able to ease into, or her estate at that point was able to ease into stomaching televised adaptations because it didn't bother them as much because they didn't have that whole sort of, is this going to be a 12-part series now with Miss Marple or even larger with Poirot? It's just that, and then there were none is such a famous standalone that I don't think I ever grouped it in the same category as some of those early thriller standalones, but... It still is a standalone, so it makes sense that this, mm-hmm. this would be one that she would be more comfortable adapting. And then, clearly, in the Russian-language adaptation in 87, was taken directly from the book, and then the BBC adaptation in 2015, I mean, this was the first of the rather glossy, high-end Christie productions that the BBC did as part of a new licensing deal. It seems that Sarah Phelps writes most, if not all of these, and that they're clearly drawing from the book and not the play. And I suppose that's just sort of an indication of a new regime in willingness to work with the BBC and sort of adapt directly from the text. We're we're in a different place now than we were 50 years ago when it was Christie making these decisions, aren't we? Yeah, well, I think that, that it's also a case of overkill of some properties, which I don't want to speak for, for anyone in the family or ex Christie Limited, but you would be mad not to be acutely aware that there are periods where there's, you know, there's a lot of Poirot at the moment. There's no real Miss Marple. So, you know, I would be thinking about where's Miss Marple coming next. But if you look at the 60s, 70s, 80s, there's a lot of, and then there were none. And, and don't rule out things like, touring productions on stage of it as well. You know, it's never really going mm-hmm. away from smaller theatres which are often seeing it. And so even if you get to a point where you can take that property back, which they did a lot you know, about 15 years ago, I think, that a lot of properties came back in-house, sort of like Christie Limited and Family, you might not necessarily want to put them out there again until people have sort of forgotten about the old ones. Not that anybody saw the 1989 one anyway. <laughs> Biding your time sometimes to be the right time to do that sort of adaptation, I think. That's right. These things sort of go in waves. We're, we're clearly in a BBC wave right now with that deal that they've done on certain properties. I would love to very loosely, and I think this will just let us discuss some of these feature film adaptations a little bit more in depth, but I would like to very loosely rank these since that's what we do on this podcast, and it's it's much easier to, to rank six feature films than it is 66 novels, which we are still in, in the middle of. I'm just going to go out on a limb here and identify potentially a surprising choice for what I think is the best adaptation, although maybe it's not that surprising. And I'm curious to see, in particular, what you think, Mark. I'm obviously always curious to see what Catherine thinks. But I think if pressed, I would actually say that the 1945 Renee Claire adaptation is my favorite. And I know that that's perhaps a little bit of a controversial choice because I think a lot of people would go for the 2015 version, which is my number two. I certainly appreciate a lot about it, but I think that the 45 film is doing a lot that works. It's a coherent movie in and of itself that works. 
on its own atmosphere and its own sort of tone that it's creating, which is very different from Christie's novel. But I think often that is what makes a good adaptation, that it works well on its own rights and on its own merits. I'm curious, Mark, about how you feel about these adaptations. Which of them is your favorite, if you had to say, and why? (laughs) I will be happy to say. (laughs) For me, the BBC one is comfortably the best. I would almost go as far as to say that I think it's the only one that's really good. For me, the reason why I particularly like it, it's very stylish and everything, that's all lovely, and there's some great performances. The reason I particularly like it is the way that it portrays Vera. I think that's just really interesting, and I think that in itself is quite a big twist for people who come to the adaptation without having read the novel, maybe having seen the film adaptation, but not really knowing the psychology behind it. That whole sequence where she watches the boy going out to swim, I just think that is such a big character moment and a real bit of a gut punch, I think, when you watch it and you you realise that someone who you think has been your sort of hero or heroine is is, is there and actually is as flawed as as sort of everybody else who we're seeing. So for me, that and various other character bits make the BBC one the best. I've never particularly got on with the 1945 one, I'm sorry to say. I don't think it's bad. I think it's good. It just doesn't particularly come together for me. It feels a little bit flat, and I've seen a lot of movies of that era, so it's not an age thing. It just seems to be very straightforward, very theatrical, which is no great surprise, really, I guess. I think certainly as an adaptation of the play, the 1945 movie is an adaptation of the play and not the novel. That much is very clear. And the 2015, the 2015 BBC adaptation is very much an adaptation of the novel and not the play. And uh, other than that Russian language adaptation, the first time that we've even seen that. And I think it does acquit itself well in terms of dealing with a lot of the themes that preoccupy the text of And Then There Were None, which we discussed in, in the part one of our episode. I think that my issue, and I'll go back to what I love about the 45 version a little bit, but I think the 2015 BBC adaptation is so interesting because it is good. Of course it's good. And, it, and what it's doing on a character level with Vera, and quite frankly, everyone is commendable, and it goes into such great depth in terms of the backstories by actually flashing back to what all these people have done, which is something that we don't really see in any other adaptations, and that's part of the power of the fact that they had three hours with which to do this. My issue with that adaptation is not the acting, it's not the set design, it's not anything like that, because it's, it's an A-plus on all of those levels. Everyone is good in it, and it looks fantastic, and the colors in it are amazing, and all of that on a technical level is great. I think my problem with it is that a lot of the backstories were altered, which is also fine. We can alter things in adaptations, but a lot of the backstories were altered so that the people were more extreme and awful versions of what we get in the book. And I would say that's even the case for Vera, because when we get that reveal of what Vera did and how she so cold-bloodedly is just lingering on the beach, allowing this little boy to die... It is, it is very shocking, but other backstories too, MacArthur, instead of just letting his wife's lover go out into the front and die, shoots him point blank in the head. Mm. The Rogerses don't deny this woman they're caring for her medication. They actually hold a pillow over her head and suffocate her. Even Miss Brent, there's this lesbian twist added and this odd scene where she's literally sucking the blood off of Beatrice Taylor's finger. It's just... You know, there is a degree in which the choice there, right, is that all of the deaths in the book, for the most part, are ones of inaction, right? It's letting people go Mm. to their deaths, and that's why they're unpunishable. And so, I mean, I guess you have an interesting dilemma because if you're filming something it's inherently going to be more interesting to watch action versus inaction on the other hand Mm -hmm. the entire point really in the book is that the reason these people got away with these crimes in the first place is they were sort of negligent deaths with ill intent versus something that could be punished by the traditional legal system. So, I mean, I think that that's an interesting point that you're making. And I agree with you that at least from a standpoint of character motivation, I much prefer the fact that all these people were 
essentially committing passive acts. It's, I think it's much more interesting in the book that they do that. On the other hand, I think if you were taking a screenwriting 101 class, you would tell people to be active, right? So I didn't say that what Kemper was saying earlier absolutely is, is, is the first one. You know, and I think it absolutely stakes a claim in terms of saying the type of adaptations you can make from Agatha Christie. And that may well have pushed people a little further in that direction. But I think that that does work well on TV. But I can understand, yeah, there is subtlety that is lost there, absolutely. But isn't there always? You know, I think you have to make those choices if you say into Screenwriting 101 and going, how do you put this to a mainstream BBC One audience and I think it I think it does it very well but I absolutely see your points as well. Quite honestly I think in all none of these adaptations really capture the magic of the book. This book is a subtly really really difficult book to adapt like I think Murder of Roger Ackroyd for obvious reasons we all know why Murder of Roger Ackroyd is really hard to adapt. This book I think is really hard to adapt and one of the many reasons is that that sense of Yes, these people are all technically murderers, but technically, and are they really that bad? And are they really that different from me as you're reading it and as you're watching this sort of descent into madness and mayhem? And you feel like you could easily put yourself in the place of, of a lot of these people, not all of them, certainly not Miss Brent even on the page, but, but a lot of them. And... To me, the extremity of their portrayal in the BBC adaptation, you lose that. And it's not even just in the backstories. You know, we have this coke-fueled orgy, which is fun to watch, but also just feels like such an extreme version of what is happening with a much lighter touch in the novel as they're strip-searching each other and eating tinned food around a table and staring at each other and just slowly going mad. Instead, we get this spontaneous eruption of a coke-fueled orgy, and it's certainly filmic, it's certainly dramatic, and I get why they did it, but to me, you're losing so much of what makes this book special. And it's why in the 45 version, I get everything you're saying, Mark, there is a flatness to it, and it's not a perfect movie, but there's a certain lightness of touch to the comedy and the dark humor in it that is at least approaching what Christie's doing in that novel. It also doesn't capture it, but to my mind, it actually oddly gets a little bit closer to what she's doing in the novel than the BBC adaptation does for all its striving to do so. You almost have to make the argument if you're going to follow the psychology of the novel that you're going to end up with a movie that's like a Boonwell dinner party gone wrong. I would certainly watch that, but I mean, that's an acquired taste. For me, I enjoyed from a watchability perspective the 1945 version. We haven't talked about the Russian one, which is, you know, also... Let's let's talk about it. Yeah, I mean, it it, it here is much closer to the novel text, and it has a certain... um, (laughs) It is so very Russian that... (laughs) Oh, boy, is it Russian. It gives it a certain that I definitely appreciated. I mean, I, I would come close to saying that it would be that or the 2015 version that I would choose. Um, I don't know what your opinion is on the Russian one, Mark. The Russian one, I've always felt is something that's a great adaptation for fans and that I can understand that people who enjoy the darker corners of that particular story are going to get a lot out of it. I, I've never been convinced that it works terribly well as, as an actual production. It's so unremittingly bleak that <laughs> I don't know how much I can get out of it as a viewer because it, it just hits you all the time and makes things extra difficult all the time because to really make this as sort of a horrible experience as possible. So it, it succeeds right well, on those terms, I think it's one of those things that has had a legend almost grow up around it because it was the one that did the, you know, very close to the novel and that did do the novel's ending. And I can understand it from that perspective. That's a valid point. And I mean, there is something to be said that, again, we're back to this. Do you follow what are better screenwriting rules in that you have some sort of rhythmic change, which it doesn't have? It is just unrelentingly bleak. It's almost not changing enough. We often are are railing against changes in adaptation, but you are changing the medium, so you probably should change something. You just have to change the right things or do it in the right way. And this one is just changing as little as possible. I mean, down to also, I think, for an English language viewer, when you're reading the subtitles, it's like you're reading the book. 
I mean, the lines are listed directly from the book. And Christie did write good dialogue, so that's fine. But it seems to be the only adaptation where it feels as if it was just copied and pasted directly into the script. And I suppose for diehard fans, that's part of the appeal. But it doesn't make necessarily for the most dramatic or dynamic uh, Yeah, well, there, there are other sort of versions, uh, again, from Russia, that uh, other adaptations that do very similar things, where uh, their adaptation of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd from about 15 years ago, I think, is five hours long and is word for word, as far as I can tell, with my not great Russian, that right. you can watch it and you can read along with the novel. Like, I didn't have subtitles, but I read it, had the novel in front of me whilst it was playing on screen, and it is, as far as I can tell, exactly the same. So it seems to be their sort of way of adapting sometimes. Maybe your Russian listeners can tell us how common that is. I know they've done it with Sherlock Holmes stories as well, so I don't know if that's a a general uh, approach to adaptation they have. The only thing I want to point out about that Russian language adaptation that to me is the encapsulation of how very Russian it is, is that obviously in all these adaptations, we have Vera and Lombard getting together. It makes a lot of sense because that's what Christie did herself in her theatrical adaptation. They're both young. They're both usually good looking in these adaptations. They're also the two that last till the end. So it makes sense that they always go there in terms of the romance to whatever degree an adaptation is romantic. The Russian language adaptation is the only one in which we get our scene when Vera and Lombard end up together in bed. But in this case, there's a little twist in that Vera, right before it's all about to happen, says she doesn't want to do it, and then Lombard does it anyway. So we have a rape scene added to what is already Mm -hmm. an extraordinarily bleak adaptation of an extraordinarily bleak novel. And I got to say, I I didn't expect that. And it felt in keeping with that adaptation. The only other thing I'd like to say in the defense of the 2015 adaptation as well, because it does get a lot of flack, I think, for that Aiden Turner towel scene, which does feel a little bit extreme with the eye candy of Aiden Turner. But that's very much in the book. In the book, Christy does specify that Lombard stripped to the skin and that Vera had to put on a bathing suit. And it's part of her lighter sort of indirect way of showing that I think the social mores are beginning to crumble within the house. You could at least say that that scene was right there in the book. Wait, so, I'm sorry. Um, who who was complaining about Aiden <laughs> Turner in the little towel? Because I, I had not heard those complaints. Well, I think that, and let me know if you think that this is a fair statement to make, Mark. I think that in that we have six adaptations here, I think it's, there are pretty clearly three of them that are better than three others, and it's the three that are better are the ones that we've just been speaking about, and that's the 1945 Renee Claire, the 2015 BBC adaptation, and the 1987 mm-hmm. Russian language adaptation. We then have these Harry Allen Towers adaptations, one from the 60s, one from the 70s, one from the 80s, all set in a different exotic setting. None of them, I think, entirely working, and I actually think that they degrade as they go on in time. For my mind, the 65 version is probably the best of the three of them, and the 80s version is surely the worst of the three of them. Would you agree with that general characterization? I would. I'm quite fond of the 1965 one, not because I think it's a good film. I should say, I don't think it's a terribly good film, but there's something about it that it just is entertaining the whole way through, sometimes because it's just ridiculous. Uh, I, I mean, Dahlia Lavi gives an absolutely appalling performance the whole way through. You've got Fabian playing the bloody piano and stuff, and it's, it's, it's so silly, really, but I, I can't fail to be entertained by it. And so, in its own right, if that was the only version we had from Harry Allen Towers, I think we'd probably think, oh, that's quite a nice, you know, for the masses, for younger people, quite clearly aimed at a younger audience, there's the, the you know, Shirley Eaton and Hugh O'Brien and people. Um, I, I think it sort of, it works, it's very silly, it's, it's very over the top. Anything that has an interval where you are to turn to the person next to you and have a discussion about who you think done it, I mean, that's a winner for me. I'm already enjoying the film knowing that that 
that's coming up. So, uh, yeah, I actually quite like it, even though it's not terribly good. And, yeah, that's right. So you talk about that in your book, um, and I don't think it's obvious to anyone who's just casually watching that movie on iTunes, but there was an intermission or interval inserted into the, the movie when it was released right before this new amount. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. It's, it's right when um, Anne and Hugh in this version, who um, might be about to kill each other or one's about to kill the other, and that is when, in versions as originally released, there is a pause and a voiceover comes and tells you that you are to turn to the person next to you and you are to discuss who you think done it. And there's a sort of a ticking clock as we have a little summary, a reminder of all of the murders that have uh, taken place. Uh, it's called a whodunit break, and I actually featured really heavily on the publicity. There's even a sort of some flyers sort of got a spinning wheel that you can turn around as if it's sort of a ticking clock while you can sort of point at who you think the person was who has been killing everybody. So it's such a William Castle type, you know, buzzers on seats, uh, skeletons flying over the audience. Cheap trick, but it's, it's still quite good fun. Cheap but fun is, is sort of a good tagline for this movie. I agree, Mark. There's something that, and I actually had seen this 65 adaptation many, many years ago on television, on some obscure channel, and I always remembered it, and I always really liked it. And part of the reason why I like it is actually due to, I think, one of the worst elements of it, which is its soundtrack, because it has this insanely jazzy inappropriate music that comes on in the beginning and then at key points during the movie when a murder is about to be committed and it feels like it belongs in a 60s James Bond movie. ridiculous, but I love it. Yeah. <laughs> the, the soundtrack for that is, is, is Malcolm Lockyer, who actually the same year did the music for Doctor Who and the Daleks, spin-off feature film of Doctor Who, the first one, which has almost exactly the same score. So he actually sort of... Uh, <laughs> clearly either it was his style, or he did it cheaply, thinking no one's going to watch right. the film in 1965. <laughs> and, and you can watch certain sections, I said, this, I recognise this score really clearly. So there's quite a few bits that are um, an homage, shall we say, to his other work. Yes, and as really we funny. all know, of course, an adaptation of Doctor Who and the Daleks, and, and then there were none to sound <laughs> exactly the same. Exactly. <laughs> we mentioned this briefly, but Hugh O'Brien plays Lombard, and I love that they just renamed his character Hugh. I wonder if Hugh O'Brien was just sort of like, yeah, I don't want to have to deal with learning another name. Just call me Q. He, too, in this movie is shirtless at the 10-minute mark, and he's no Agent Turner, but it's, he's in shape. And it's funny to me because I think there is often in these, in these adaptations a little bit of objectification of not only Vera, but also whoever is playing Lombard, whatever his first name may be. Obviously, we see that with Aiden Turner in the most recent adaptation, but we get it here with Hugh O'Brien. We even get it a little bit, you could argue, with Frank Stallone, who has at least one scantily clad scene in that awful adaptation. And there's this scene, too, within the 65 version, which you pointed out in your bookmark, and I felt the same way, where when he is shirtless, he's actually being spied on through a keyhole by Bloor. And it's this weird moment mm -hmm. because you can tell the way it's filmed and the way that it plays in the movie. It's not meant to be a gay moment at all, but it sure seems like it. Like, it's sure for the audience yeah. now and probably even at the time, you're like, what's happening here right now? It's, it's jarring. And it's just, it's just amusing. And there's not that much to say about the 74 version because it's such a straight remake of the 65 version. The hotel where they filmed, and this is in pre-revolutionary Iran, is gorgeous. I mean, there you do get a sense of vastness that almost reminded me of The Shining in a good way. That's obviously very mm. different from what Christy, Christy was doing in her setting in, in the novel. And I think none of these adaptations ever quite nailed the creepiness of the stark, washed-out, brightly lit setting that she created. In the novel, I suppose that the 2015 adaptation comes close, especially with 
the island itself. Like, I like that sinkhole that they added to the island. It is very stark. But the interior design, to me, was still even a little bit too busy. And in every other adaptation, it feels very busy. But, you know, this one also has Oliver Reed playing Lombard, who is a very different sort of masculine figure, but, you know, a little bit more of the Richard Burton. The only other thing I want to note about it is that the voice on the record, or tape in this case, of Ewan Owen is apparently Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your host speaking. My name is U.N. Owen. I have brought you here to charge you with the following crime. So that's cool. I, I think that the 74 version is an attempt to make the film feel more sort of new Hollywood. I think there's a real attempt in the direction, which is very slow and lots of long establishing shots. It reminds me quite a lot, actually, of parts of The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby and even Bonnie and Clyde, where there's, there's quite a lot of sort of pausing sometimes where we are supposed to read something into the psychology of the way that people have left a scene or about to enter a scene because it's all very quiet. But it just makes it a bit boring and slow. So someone who I think has very deliberately tried to make this feel like a contemporary new Hollywood film has sort of failed quite completely, I think, unfortunately, because it just makes it feel a little bit dull. That's a very interesting point. All of them in that regard can be seen as very distinct reflections of the years in which they came out. The 1940s version has a certain staginess. The 1960s version has a certain loopiness. Um, I think it's an interesting point about the 70s version mirroring 1970s Hollywood cinema. The 1989 version has Frank Stallone in it, so <laughs> we can say that also very much mirrors that era. The 1980s version is very shallow, <laughs> just like the 80s. I think that's totally fair. And I think you even picked out this moment as well, Mark, and, and I agree that I think one of the most effective new Hollywood-y things that they do in the movie is at the very beginning, when we're watching from Mrs. Rogers' point of view, she's staring out at the desert. She's in front of this hotel. It's really in the middle of nowhere. I mean, just sand as far as you can see, a veritable ocean of sand. And then very slowly, a helicopter appears out of nowhere, and it gets louder and louder, and it comes. And this is, of course, the helicopter that's delivering everyone. And it feels very Lawrence of Arabia appearing out of the, you know, out of the heat in the sand. And it's well done, but then it's all kind of downhill from there. It's not terrible. I mean, it's I, I'm, I'm probably being a little harsher on the 74 version than it deserves. And it is hard not to, as you mentioned, Mark, critique the Harry Allen Towers movies all together because he did do three of them, and each of them has this different setting, and it's set in its own decade. And the 61, if it were on its own, would certainly fare better because... We have this 80s version, and we don't have to spend a long time on it, but there's just not a whole lot of anything good to say about it. I mean, this one is supposedly period set in the 30s, but it looks very 80s to me. It's a little bit of a refresh in terms of the script and the story. It's not a straight remake of the other two versions, so there is at least that, but it's not doing anything particularly interesting. Is there, Mark, a reason why he got to retain the rights for three different versions or why he was involved with three different versions? Yeah, I don't know the, the fine details, but uh, it, certainly it's the case that he retained the right, I think, because there is a, a sort of time. My guess would be 15 years, seeing as this is 15 years after the previous one, where you sort of retain the rights. And if you make another one, you retain the rights for another sort of 15 years. Um, but I, I don't know the finer details of that. What I do know is that this is all done completely away from the Christie family. And my assumption is that he bought the rights actually from the producers of the René Clare film, because I'm not sure that any of these are particularly known about to the, the, the Agatha Christie family. There is a little bit of correspondence about the 65 one, where they talk about filming some of it in Dublin. Uh, and I think there might even be an invitation there. But um, certainly by the time the 74 one was made, Agatha Christie herself and her agent and her publisher did not know that the film had been shot until it turned up in some of the trade press to say this is coming out soon. So that's how far removed they were from, from the making of wow. the film. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. That's kind of appalling. Yeah. 
My other question that I just sort of right turn here is how did these do? I mean, how did these do theatrically? How did they do on television? The 1965 version did okay. It, it, it would have made a profit. The 1974 one was funded, I had to, I guess, choose my words slightly carefully. I think it was funded in a way that it was going to make money whatever happened because it seems to have been co-funded by a lot of European funding bodies. And this is why there's actually a, another version of the film that has extra scenes in Italian, I think. There may be a Spanish version as well, which are about two people in a marketplace trying to find out the mystery of these ten little dolls that they think someone might be in danger because of. It. So it's completely nowhere near the hotel. It's where the helicopter takes off at the beginning. So these things were added in a different language to be distributed in Spain and Italy. So I think there was some sort of funding arrangement there that meant that was always going to at least not not lose money. And it was distributed in, the, in a bonkers way. I think it came out in, in the UK about a year after mainland Europe and not even as a big sort of feature. So I think there was probably a very wise accountant somewhere worked out how to do that. Or, or some questionable money laundering going on in the continent. <laughs> well, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, what? <laughs> In terms of the 1989 one, that's from Canon films. I don't know if you know Canon, but they made lots of these sort of cheap cash in movies. They'd already done sort of Agatha Christie, actually. But, but things that they knew they could quickly sell, and I think they were looking at the home video market as much as anything else. It performed abysmally at cinemas in uh, the United States. It actually had a very limited release anyway, but it made next to no money. I, I can't remember the, the numbers off the top of my head, but, but they're in the book somewhere. And it never even got a proper theatrical release in the UK, for sure. And it's always been very difficult to track down in the UK, actually. I, I don't think it was ever even officially released on video to buy. I think it only ever came out as a video rental, which sort of sometimes people end up buying in cheap sales later. So it was completely ignored in this country, as it was mostly in the United States. So that's wow. incredibly interesting. And it's interesting that probably Harry Allen Horror has got the rights from the Renee Claire version as well, because there are weird echoes of what the Renee Claire version did in some of these adaptations. Like, there's that whole odd voting sequence that happens in the Renee Claire version when they vote as to who they think did it, and then Rogers is the one that gets the most votes, so he has to go out of the house. That gets put back in the story in the 89 version, which I found very odd. I don't know. At that point, it's like we're swirling around in this soup of all of these different adaptations that are once, if not more, removed from certainly the play and, and very much the novel. And I suppose the 2015 version was a was a much needed refresh. I'm just curious if there's any indication in the 70s when we did have these high-profile, star-studded adaptations of Murder on the Oregon Express and Death on the Nile. Did those producers want to do and then there were none? I mean, it's such a, it, to me, it seems like such a natural novel to turn to because it is so beloved and so successful. Was there ever any discussion of that or just no, because it was kind of its own thing? No, not really. Not from any of the, the big players. The response to Murder on the Orient Express generally was more Poirot and bizarrely often more trains. So uh, another shoot, I think <laughs> Warner Brothers, immediately said, oh, can we have the mystery of the blue train? I think thinking there's another Poirot where he's on a train, which obviously didn't go anywhere. Uh, but no, not really. Right. I mean, I think the thing is that then there were none really was reaching overkill at this point, even in the 1965 reviews, and we can't take what critics say as a gospel, but they were saying, oh, another screen outing. Obviously, it was only the second film, but it does turn up on TV. It had been on TV in 59 and 49. And again, like I say, it tours all the time. I'm sure that at any point in the last 70 years, you're going to be able to find and then there were none being performed somewhere in the world. So it never really feels like it goes away. The big thing that Murder on the Orient Express did was it opened up the possibility for those properties which had always been sort of closed off suddenly might be accessible, which essentially was the novels. I believe that the 89, uh, and then there were none, uh, or Tender Lindy, was originally pitched as, for the first time we're going to do 
the book's ending, and then I suspect somebody tapped them on the shoulder and pointed out that they didn't have the rights for that. They actually only had the rights for the play, which obviously has a different ending. And so we do have the play's ending. But it went through loads of stuff. I mean, the, the, the poster for, for this, in pre-publicity in some of the trade journals, calls it death on safari, so not even that. And it actually has Agatha Christie sort of tucked away somewhere. So you wonder whether actually they were just saying, oh, thanks Stallone. People see the word Stallone, they'll see death, they'll see, you know, a, a pretty safari. young woman, and that might be enough for people to rent it. I think that's such a good point, and it, it does color how these adaptations came about, the fact that with this title specifically, we are dealing with a very successful play which never has stopped being put on. We get Google alerts about amateur productions of And Then There Were None just all over the world. It seems to be the most uh, produced of the plays. There are a lot of um, summer stock all over the United States. And I swear, I looked this up because I was curious about something else. Some theater had advertised that essentially they do a Christie play every summer for the summer crowds. And there had been on one peninsula in... Maine, in coastal Maine, in like the last two years, at least three productions, other than there were none. What is Cabot Cove by any chance? (laughs) (laughs) There are certainly some murder she wrote that are set in terrible theater productions. This also brings up one point that I just wanted to make as a super fan of the novel, because I imagine there are some people who have also had this thought. In the 2015 version and the 1987 Russian version, we do certainly get all 10 deaths, and we get a bleak ending that matches the ending of the novel, but not entirely, because, and then there were none, the novel is an impossible crime novel, right? We get this tableau in which the police come onto the island, they find 10 people murdered, there are diary entries that some people were keeping while they were on the island, they were able to piece together the order in which they died. Everything matches up to the way that it apparently happened, and yet you have the chair pulled away from Vera hanging and put against the wall, so it makes no sense. It seems as if a ghost did it, and no one has any idea what happened, and it's a, it's this fantastic, impossible crime. And then, of course, we get our postscript where Wargrave explains how he did it, and we get the slightly goofy slash awkward impossible crime solution of the elastic hanging off of his glasses and the gun recoiling into the hallway, et cetera, et cetera. And we find out about that after the fact as readers. None of the adaptations are actually doing that. And they're not doing it because it would be boring to, I think, play out the story the way that it does in the novel. In the novel, it's very effective to have that moment where as readers were like, hey, wait a second, how did this really happen? What, you know, what's going on here? And then we get the, the message in a bottle, the literal message in a bottle, and Wargrave's confession, and he tells us after the fact, I was hiding in the shadows as Vera was hanging herself. Well, how could you not include that scene of Wargrave hiding in the shadows while Vera is hanging herself in a film adaptation of it? And then once you have the reveal of Wargrave, no one's going to go to the ridiculous lengths of showing the elastic off of the glasses and all that, because it just seems silly and kind of beside the point once you know that Wargrave did. So, again, it goes to this idea that And Then There Were None is, I think, a subtly difficult novel to adapt because the impossible crime is never actually sustained in any of these adaptations, and I don't think it's likely ever to be because it would just be kind of silly to watch that on screen. Mark, do you have anything you would like to add? Final words on And Then There Were None. Uh, No, other than I think it's great. I I think that we can sometimes forget how brilliant it is because we're so used to it and it's sort of omnipresent and we see it there all the time. And I don't know what your response to the novel, having reread it, is because I haven't obviously heard that podcast yet. But I'm going to, in my imagination, believe that you you still think it's great because I still think it's great. And there's a reason it's endured. It's brilliant. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, don't worry. We rank this one very high. Not a spoiler, because by the time this airs, we'll have aired that episode. It is our new leader among Christie novels. I think oh. that doesn't, that's not a surprise. We talked about that a little bit. It's hard to critique. And then there were none, I think, from a place of it not existing in the world. It's so seeped into the culture as a story and a construct. But we did our best, and we absolutely agree with you on the brilliance of the novel. And we are so appreciative of you taking the time to speak about all of these adaptations with us. So thank you for that. Pleasure to speak to you both, as always. 
usual, that was a delightful conversation with Mark. And uh, hopefully all of our beloved listeners understand the phone quality and the fact that we are communicating through the great moderns of technology from Los Angeles to the UK. And we are so happy to be able to do that because I think that Mark always provides tremendous insight and for all of our readers out there we've mentioned him so many times but you can buy his book Christie on screen which I think is a tremendous addition to any fan of the Christie adaptation canon 100% agree and so we are always so happy to talk to him i hope that all of our listeners can take some time perhaps and respond to us about what their favorite adaptation of this is and other thoughts around it yeah if you had favorite performances or just anything you'd like to highlight we can always of course continue that conversation on social media if you really really like the frank stallone performance (laughs) you know i mean there are all sorts of possibly interesting points that you could bring up if you wanted to pinpoint miss emily brent and the renee claire version who was played by mrs danvers from hitchcock's rebecca for example which i kept on meaning to mention but never did in our conversation these are the kinds of things that we could nerd out about in other forums we definitely could so as always we look forward to hearing from all of you uh kemper how do we do that well we do that a couple of different ways but first i should mention before we get to our sign off that next week we will be covering of course a short story and that will be a parker pine rejoice Catherine. we're we're back to parker pine it's got everything that just tickles Catherine's receptors Mm -hmm. when it comes to parker pine shall we say Yes, the hackles are risen to their just utmost height here along Catherine's back on this one. So we can all look forward to some thoughts that she has. And that one is the case of the discontented husband. So join us for that one. And in the meantime, yes, please contact us via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can tweet directly with Catherine about Parker Pine, among other things, at Brobcat. You can find us on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Instagram handle is also at All About Agatha. And we would really appreciate it if you took a moment to rate and review us. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.